Good morning, everyone. Welcome. Welcome to those joining us online as well. A couple of announcements. We do have a new roster that's out uh, in the foyer by the world map, so feel free to check that out and sign up if you feel led to serve in a particular way. We don't just roll over uh, what people did from one year to the next, uh, giving space for the Lord to lead you to do something else, to give other people opportunities to serve and step up. So um, please consider that prayerfully. And also, there will be a quarterly meeting after church today if you want to hang around for that. I believe it will be live streamed so those joining online can watch as well. We'll be in Luke chapter 21, starting in verse 5. And let's start with prayer. Thank you, Lord, that you are a miracle worker, that you are our all-in-all, all, the one who has raised us from death to life, the one who loves us and who has called us by your grace, the one who has um, word that will not fail, promises that you will keep, power that you have shown forth from before creation even till now, and will do so till the end of all things. And thank you that for us, Lord, in Christ, we are with you forever, that we have eternal life, and we will enjoy and praise and worship you without restriction. And we look forward to that day, Lord, when we will see you face to face. Until then, Lord, please uh, quicken us by your Spirit. Fill us to overflowing so that we might be fruitful for your glory, doing your will, rejoicing in your goodness, looking to you, and loving you. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Have you guys ever been to a, an illusionist? And, and uh, I remember going as a kid and was quite entranced by the tricks and the, the sleight of hand and the misdirection. And like I was told, like, this is what illusionists do. They'll, they'll have an assistant. They'll have something they do to direct your attention away from where the action's happening. So I would be like, knowing this, I'm always looking for where the action could be happening. And I'm not really seeing, I'm almost missing the whole enjoyment of the grand reveal because I'm trying to figure out how it happens. Like, how is he doing that? How is she uh, baffling me? Or where did that come from? And, um, and even as I know what's happening, I can't tell you sometimes how it happens. Uh, our family recently played a board game called Consulting Detective. And basically, you're, you're matching wits against Sherlock Holmes to try to solve mysteries. And, and so you know there's a mystery you're all trying to figure out what it is, and so you're, you're really reading into things and trying to, and I think the game just throws some curveballs at you on purpose, so that by the end you say, man, without inside information, it would be impossible to come to that conclusion, and I would be a lousy detective. Because so often, the, the trail just goes cold, and you're obsessing over these minute details in the newspaper or in an interview that really have no bearing on anything. So you're just following these trails, but missing the big picture. And I think like a, a fictional character like Sherlock Holmes that seems to have all the answers is still not God. He has to deduce. He has to have uh, facts that he will process and come to a conclusion. But God just knows, and he does. Like God is totally controlling. He is, he's over all things. He's supreme. And God's revealed himself to us, and he's given us his word, yet he's not told us everything the future holds or how exactly it's going to play out or how it involves us. 
Still, we're given all we need to trust him today, to follow Jesus. And we can be really distracted by the things we don't know or can't understand. Like being focused on the mechanics of that magic trick or that illusion. Like, how is it happening? What's going on behind the scenes? And we can be caught up in current events or prophetic passages in scripture or news reports and so focused into digging into what we really can't know fully now that we forget that God rules all and that he is bringing about his good purposes through even suffering and persecution. We, we can miss the message because we're so mired in the little details that really, in the big scope, are irrelevant. Praise the Lord, all that prepare their hearts to seek him, all that wait patiently on him. We are prepared. It's not like we will be prepared. No, we are prepared for whatever we face and can rejoice knowing our redemption draws near. So let's begin in Luke 21, verse 5. Then, as some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations, he said, These things which you see, the days will come in which not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. So they asked him, saying, Teacher, but when will these things be? And what sign will there be when these things are about to take place? The disciples were commenting on the great stones of the temple, the rich decorations and donations that adorned, adorned it. So people uh, donated precious uh, stones that were on the temple. And Herod the Great, we know, rebuilt the temple to the size of the one built by King Solomon. And he expanded the Temple Mount greatly from 19 B.C. to 4 B.C. And the work wasn't even completed until 63 A.D., so it was 80-plus years in renovations and rebuilding. And um, after the children of Israel came back from Babylon, the temple that was built was not as grand as Solomon's temple. But King Herod, he, or yeah, Herod the Great, he decided that we need to... Because um, he, he had a connection with the Jewish people and decided to build the temple far grander to the days of old. And when I visited Israel, I toured the Western Wall Tunnels... And in those walls, you can find, so it's under street level, you can find a stone, which is the, one of the last, so it's the lowest level to where stones were thrown down. And it's this massive stone. It's uh, 10 meters above bedrock, 13.6 meters long, 3 meters high, and estimated to be 3.3 meters deep. So above 500 metric tons. Quarried with precision, these stones were placed without mortar or glue or anything holding them together. It's just gravity and sheer weight that holds them in place, and you can't even slip a piece of paper through the cracks. They were so well put together. And they don't even know how those stones were moved uh, to this day. But in response to the richness and the beauty of the temple and how they were commenting on, oh, it's so lovely now, it's so beautiful, Jesus said, the days will come in which one stone shall not be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. That's kind of a kill joy. But Jesus is like focused on the reality. Like this thing, this grand edifice, it's going to come down. And in about 40 years it did in 70 AD. And the disciples, they asked, when will these things be? And I believe when is a, is a MacGuffin. You're like, what's a MacGuffin? Well, it's a plot device and can be a massive distraction from the point that Jesus is making. So a MacGuffin, it's used in film often where you have 
this plot device, it's centered around, the, the whole movie is centered around this one object that really doesn't matter, like Lord of the Rings. So there's a ring, but the movie isn't about rings. It's about how the ring travels from place to place. Star Wars, the first one, it was about, it, it all centered around the plans, the Death Star plans, right? There's no really great, um, I guess, architectural renderings of those plans. It's not a movie for architects. No, it's a science fiction movie that is all about like the Death Star plans and getting into the rebels' hands, and they use those plans to win. So the disciples are asking, well, when is this going to happen? But that really wasn't the point. Jesus said it will occur, and by trusting in him, they would be ready and guided and helped to endure it, to know how to handle that. The question is, would they sanctify Jesus in their hearts? Would they keep him separate and superior to all others? Would they trust him more than their own feelings, and would they see him worthy of obedience and faithfulness? Really, the question was on them. How are you going to respond in light of what Jesus says and what is going to occur that you can't control, that's all in his hands, and in his timing, he's in charge. The disciples asked for a sign. Seeing the sign would help them to be prepared or to recognize God's fulfillment, to respond appropriately, but the timing is all in God's hands. Now, Matthew 24 and Mark 13, they're similar passages to the Luke account. The Matthew account, it goes into far greater detail about the end times. And I'll just read it to you in Matthew 24, 3. See how the question that's recorded is different than in Luke. It says, Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So they're asking three specific questions there that they're not all addressed in Luke. They're more addressed in Matthew. And the Luke passage does allude to some of them, but primarily because we're in Luke and we're not doing a harmony of the Gospels, we're focused more on Luke at the moment. It's about the coming destruction of Jerusalem and the temple there. And that's the question that Jesus throughout this passage is going to camp on. He has a multifaceted answer and it's important when we do interpret passages of prophecy, we realize that they're not always given in chronological order, and there can be multiple fulfillments of a single prophecy. So we will get into that as we continue. Some of these things that Jesus prophesied, like the uh, destruction of the temple, that is in the past for us. But it also is in the future, because we'll see that um, for Scripture to be fulfilled and it cannot be broken, another temple must be built. So God, he's faithful to keep his word in the past, and he will be faithful in the future too. Luke 21, verse 8. And he said, Take heed that you not be deceived. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time has drawn near. Therefore do not go after them. But when you hear of wars and commotions, do not be terrified, for these things must come to pass first. Pass first, but the end will not come immediately. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be great earthquakes in various places and famines and pestilences. And there will be fearful sights and great signs from heaven. The disciples asked, when are these things going to be? And Jesus does not answer with a space of time. 
That's how I would have answered that question. But Jesus shows it's better for us to examine our hearts, trusting that the timing is in his hands. It was about 40 years later that Jerusalem and the temple fell. Now, if I know an event's going to take place in 40 years from now, it's going to strike away some of the urgency that I ought to have, right? If I know, hey, that's 40 years from now, I don't really need to think about it until it's a little closer. Jesus doesn't answer with a space of time because he wanted to keep that sense of urgency and to make it relevant for them and for us because we're looking at it in the past. But the way Jesus answered it, how he answered it, it keeps it relevant for us to have a sense of urgency uh, about obeying God and looking to him and also trusting in him when we face persecutions and difficulties. Matthew Henry, he says this, the first word Christ said was, Take heed that you not be deceived. Those that are most inquisitive in the things of God, though it is very good to be so, are in most danger of being imposed upon. So they're curious about when is this going to happen? And Jesus answers that by saying, do not be deceived. Because there's going to be a lot of people who say, I know that it's getting close. And I know when it's going to happen. And they would pose as false Christ and draw people after themselves. So he says, don't be tricked by them. You're interested in things of God, good. You're interested in the timing of, in, uh, I guess, end-of-the-world events, eschatology, great, but don't be deceived. Look to Jesus, trust in him. Because there were many priests and rabbis and prophets who wielded influence over the people of God, and even outside Judaism, who claimed they know something that's hidden and would be revealed. And so Jesus says, refuse those false Christs, those Uh, prognosticators. You're to reject them. He says, wars and conflicts will come, but don't be shaken, don't waver in fear. And they would be signs that his words are coming to pass, but don't lose heart. It's not the end of the world. And uh, during my life, I've seen many, um, well, I'll say rubbish theories that have been proclaimed, that proclaim this is the end of the world. This is the sign of the apocalypse. It's coming. You know, 2012, uh, before that, on and on. We have all these times where, man, something's going to happen. The end of the world is coming. And many people believe that. Many people went because they looked at the conflicts and they say, with these earthquakes that are happening, when we see these things, well, the end is now. But Jesus says it's not yet the end. In light of wars and conflicts, people have put dates on the rapture of the church, Christ's return, judgment, And he said that these would mark his return and the coming judgment of the world. But the world cannot possibly end before Jesus returns because he is going to end it. And he is going to bring the new heavens and new earth into existence. So he has to be here for it to end. So it's not ending until he's here. So he's saying, hey, it's going to end, but not yet. Verse 12, but before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake, but it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. Therefore, settle it in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. 
but not a hair of your head shall be lost. But by patience, possess your souls. Before the fall of the temple in Jerusalem, Jesus told his disciples they would be persecuted, they would be arrested. They, and that would provide an opportunity for them to testify before kings and rulers. They would have this new opportunity to, be, to share their eyewitness accounts of Jesus Christ and his glory that they wouldn't have otherwise. The book of Acts records many other instances of this, how people were arrested and boldly proclaimed the gospel in prison uh, before rulers, and uh, the gospel was preached in synagogues that were under the law of Moses and before Jewish and Roman rulers. These believers who were eyewitnesses of the death and resurrection of Jesus, even death could not silence their testimony that we still have and the fruitfulness of their faithfulness. So knowing that they would be betrayed by even their family members, friends, and face death, how could they prepare? By settling their hearts to trust God to give them a mouth and wisdom that all their adversaries would not be able to resist or answer. Think about Moses. He didn't speak well. Like he says, I am am slow of tongue and slow of speech. I don't think that's an excuse. I think that compared to other people, perhaps that's true. But God used him to speak to Pharaoh. God used him to lead the children of Israel because it was God's work. And he chose him to use him. It was God who supplied wisdom and words they would use in that coming hour at that unknown day when these persecutions would take place. And this is totally consistent with Jesus' teaching concerning future events. God doesn't want us to put off seeking him and trusting him or looking to him until an arbitrary time in the future. He wants us looking to him right now. He doesn't put any time frames. He doesn't, Jesus did not respond with, oh, this many years, so that in that many years they would start trusting Jesus. He wants it to be in real time right now that we look to him, we trust him, to give us a mouth and wisdom. It's about walking with Jesus today with hearts settled in his goodness, his love, his grace, his provision that he is going to come through. Jesus said, they will put some of you to death. You will be hated, but not a hair of your head will be lost. I like that he says lost. We know that people would die for the sake of the gospel, but Jesus' words rang true because their souls would not be lost. They would be preserved. In patience, their souls would be kept. And this Strong's Concordance, it describes patience as cheerful or hopeful endurance, constancy. Cheerful endurance. I don't know about you, but when I'm doing, in, when I, endurance is required in running, it's not a cheerful feeling. Like, oh, I think I'm going to die. Cheerful continuance, perseverance, hoping, like not just I hope this is going to be over, but knowing that we will finish the race because it's Jesus who is helping us. He teaches that persecution provides an opportunity to give evidence, to testify, why we trust Jesus. Whether other people listen or not, that's between them and God, but we're assured of God's guidance and that we can respond to the situation as he desires. So I encourage you, settle your hearts. Are your hearts settled or are they 
filled with upheaval based upon what's happening in the world, upon how you feel. We shouldn't be confident because I know the answers to common objections to the faith, but because we trust God and our hearts are settled in Him, that we'll be able to give an answer in due season when it's needed. I like what Peter said, and he's someone who experienced hatred. He was arrested. He was martyred for the faith. He said this in 1 Peter 3, 13 through 16. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed." So sanctifying the Lord in our hearts, having hearts settled in Him. And when we feel unsettled, to confess that and say, Lord, I am unsettled right now. My heart is not settled on you. I'm not resting in you. I'm not trusting you. He is our hope. And praise the Lord, our faith is based on on real evidence of Christ's life, His gospel, His death, resurrection, and promises. Pressing on in Luke 21, 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart. And let not those who are in the country enter her. For these are the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. For there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Luke, again, it's recording the answer to Jesus' question in relation to the question that was posed. When Jerusalem is surrounded, when Jerusalem is besieged by armies, that was their cue to flee. They weren't to enter the city after that time. They weren't to... uh, you know, barricade themselves within the temple. They were to leave because vengeance was coming. God would judge Israel for the rejection of the Messiah. He would uh, see that not one stone was left on top of another of the temple. There would be a heavy price. Many would die. The temple would be destroyed. The people scattered, led captive to all nations. We see in the prophets, there, was, there were many proclamations of woe in Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and uh, others. Woe against Israel, woe against Judah, and that was fulfilled by the Assyrians, by the Babylonians, but it would also be fulfilled. Those passages were relevant for the woe Jesus is talking about here in Jerusalem. But we can see also that there is a future fulfillment, that there will be Uh, a time when the people of Israel are to flee when they see the abomination of desolation that Daniel speaks about. Remember when Jesus was coming, so this is also consistent with Jesus arriving to uh, Jerusalem on the donkey. Remember he wept over the city in Luke 19, 41 through 44, and he said, you don't realize the day of your visitation and not one stone is going to be left on another. So this is, uh, again, confirming the words he's already spoken to his disciples who asked him this question. 
We read in history that after a four-year campaign in 70 AD, Titus did sack Jerusalem. The historian Josephus, he provides a very harrowing description of the events that happened. Instead of fleeing, many people stayed. They did try to barricade themselves in there, and he, he, he talks about the blood of people going down the steps and the temple being in flames, and it's, it's worthy of weeping. It's a horrible thing that happened um, at that time, and that's why Jesus wept. In 1948, Israel became an independent nation. The Jewish people, they've returned to the land. See, we're, we're reading about the destruction of the temple in the past. That's already happened. But we'll see that based upon the Matthew passage, there must be another temple so that it can be defiled so that these other events can take place. Because in Matthew 24, 15, uh, it does not mention being surrounded by armies at all. It talks about the abomination of desolation, which we read of in Daniel 9, 27, because the temple that's built will be polluted. So it says, when you see the abomination of desolation, that's your cue to flee. And then it says in Revelation 11:2, because Jesus had talked about the trampling down by the Gentiles, the times of the Gentiles, we know that hasn't been fulfilled yet. We can look at Israel and say, well, the Temple Mount is controlled by Gentiles. So clearly, the, we're still in the time of the Gentiles. But in Revelation 11:2, it says, but leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. So, the great tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble, as it says in Jeremiah, it will last seven years before the return of Jesus. And midway through the seven-year period, that's when the abomination of desolation will be seen in the temple. That's the cue in the future for the Jews to get out of Jerusalem, and God will protect them for 42 months before the return of Jesus because at that time, the Jewish nation will come to faith in Jesus. They will recognize that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and trust him as Lord and Savior. All right, so that, uh, just had to get that out there. Hopefully that helps with uh, putting the pieces together. But you know, we, we don't know all the times and seasons that the Lord has put in his own power, but we can be ready, we can be prepared by settling our hearts and seeking him. Continuing, verse 25, And there will be signs in the sun, in the moon, and in the stars, and on the earth distress of nations with perplexity, and the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear, and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads, because your redemption draws near. Jesus is answering questions in relation to the temple, but clearly he is alluding to more than just the temple, right? He's talking about a worldwide global impact of the troubles that will come, these signs in the sun, the moon, the stars, the earth, the distress of people, the perplexity of like, what is going on? And we felt like that at times, right? This distress, it's not limited just in Jerusalem or Israel or for the Jews alone. It's for all people. People are going to be afraid because of the things they are seeing, because of the things they are, the signs that are happening in the skies and in the ocean and in the nations uh, warring against one another. The powers of heaven will be shaken. 
All these troubles, they are signs that point to the coming of Jesus, the risen Son of Man, coming in a cloud to judge the earth. And he says, these signs don't mean the end is coming immediately. Instead of being fearful or shaken, how ought they to live? He says, when these things begin to start happening, look up and lift up your heads. They're to look to Jesus, their risen Savior. They're to lift up their heads from the sorrow and the sadness and the confusion and perplexity and be joyous because their redemption is drawing near. And how good a reminder this is for us. How easy it is for us to focus on the wrong things. I've heard many people mention that wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes, pestilence, they're, time, they're signs that time is short. This is true. Time is short. Life is short. Who knows when God will require our souls from us and, or catch us up in the rapture, gathering himself to church. These signs, though, they're not pointing to our destruction. They're pointing to our redemption. They're pointing to a hope that we have to be with Jesus forever in his presence. For us, the appearance of Jesus is the appearance of a Savior and a Messiah who loves us. That our redemption draws near because there has been a full ransom paid. We've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. He's the down payment of our inheritance. And when I think about buying a car or a house, that the final payment, I have a lot more joy in that than the first payment. Right? Putting down that down payment on a house, yes, it's satisfying. You, you did it, but you really haven't done anything yet. There's a lot more to do, but when you finally, you know, you paid off your second mortgage, and, and it's like, we are finishing this. We, it is time to celebrate. That is like when Jesus returns, because there's still salvation to accomplish in your life because you still live in a body of flesh and you live in a world corrupted with sin. But a day is coming when you will be changed. You will be like him and see him as he is. You will know him as you are known. So there's going to be a, a big, I mean, a huge shift in the way that we relate to God because we will be like him. We will be with him. Our knowledge is limited right now. We prophesy in part, Paul says. It's like we can barely scratch the surface of what we know about God today, but I like what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, and 13. He says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know just as I also am known. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. And he points out the difference between looking at a reflection and it would be usually polished metal and seeing a really dim outline of yourself compared to seeing someone in person. You know, I, even with quad HD cameras, and there's a big difference between FaceTime and quality time in person. Huge difference. Our clearest views of God right now, they are foggy, they are limited. And it's like we can know God. And his spirit dwells within us, but there is even more to know. I look forward to that. When the earthquakes, we don't need to be shaken because we're settled in Christ. We're resting in him. We don't need to tremble or be afraid because the birth pangs of the coming judgment, it speaks to our redemption and our being joined to God forever. In childbirth, those birth pangs, they have a redemptive purpose 
And when this earth and the people in it go through this trouble, it will have a redemptive purpose to to make people receptive to the things of God, to make them, when shaken, seek a foundation. And they will hear this testimony that we've been afforded through Christ, and by the trial, they will come to know him. It's part of God's plan. Luke 21, 29. Then he spoke to them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they are already budding, you see and know for yourselves that summer is now near. So also, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Jesus uses a fig tree and really all trees in this parable. He says, without looking at a diary, without consulting your uh, sundials or the position of the sun in the heavens, you know just because there's buds on it that summer's getting close. Man, it's close to summer. They didn't put a date on it. There wasn't like an hour that they knew, but they said, hey, you don't need to be a meteorologist to know. You could be an, an illiterate farmer, and he could know just as easily summer's coming. So he says the same thing. When you see these signs, you can know that your redemption draws near. The kingdom of God is drawing near. And it's the generation that sees the sign that will see the fulfillment. So, for example, when you see those, those armies surrounding Jerusalem, you will see the fall of Jerusalem. That's the sign. When you see the abomination of desolation, that generation that sees that, they will see, seven year, three and a half years later, they will see the return of Jesus Christ. 42 months. So, uh, Jesus doesn't define the generation or genea in terms of years. It becomes confusing and problematic when we do because it's actually a much bigger definition. That it means in the Vines Bible Dictionary, a multitude of people living at the same time, especially those of the Jewish race, living at the same period. So it's not, def- it's not restricted to a year uh, measurement when he says generation here. So the generation that sees the thing, they will not pass away until there's the fulfillment. Just like when that farmer sees the budding on that tree, he knows summer's coming. God, God willing, he will be there to experience that hot summer that we are now in the middle of, it feels like, even though it just started. Verse 34, But take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and cares of this life, and that day come on you unexpectedly. For it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch, therefore, and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. And in the daytime he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and stayed on the mountain called Olivet. Then early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Jesus began by saying, do not be deceived. And now he says, take heed to yourselves. He doesn't say, now be looking out for those earthquakes. Be ferreting out those wars and rumors of wars. No, take heed to yourselves. This uplifting message of redemption would be lost on them because he's saying it could, you very well, because you're facing persecution, because Jerusalem is surrounded, because the earth is being shaken, you can be weighed down with a lot of cares. He's talking to disciples. He's saying, blinded by by fear, grief, and pain, this, this day can be like a snare 
to you and those on the earth. It will catch you off guard. You know, like when you're playing with a mouse trap that's loaded and you're like, how much pressure do I need to put on it? And you're, you've been touching it. Oh, and then snap. Whoa. And it gets you. He's saying this could be like for you. Focused on these, these little things, caught up, worried, confused, perplexed, but not settled, not resting, not seeking, not, not turning that perplex, being perplexed into joy that Jesus is coming for us to save us. And many, many believers, we can overindulge with food, with drink, preoccupied with cares of this life. A man whose marriage is breaking down, he immerses himself in work. Uh, a woman who's starving for attention, she finds it in an illicit relationship. Many seek an escape from the reality with music or drugs or sex or sinful things like pornography. Where it's like we, we're feeling pain, we're feeling uncertain, and so we go to these things to try to relieve the stress or the pressure that we're feeling instead of being settled in the Lord. Coupled with an uncertain future, our hearts are weighed down, we can begin to look to things rather than to Jesus. And so he says, watch and pray. Not just watch for the signs, watch for me. Look to me. Lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. He says, watch and pray you would be counted worthy. And that word worthy means entirely deserving to escape the coming judgment and to stand before God. Who among us is entirely worthy? None of us, but by God's grace, we stand. It's he who upholds us. It's he who has saved us and received us and redeemed us. He makes us to stand because the sacrifice of Jesus has atoned for our sin. We get a little insight into Jesus and his, his lifestyle in those days. It says he taught by day in the temple, and at night he camped out on the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning, it says all the people came to him to teach, and to some, Jesus was a celebrity, to some, a man of God, to others, a curiosity, to all who trusted in him, Lord and Savior. So who is Jesus to you? Why would you draw near to hear him, to seek him? Today's the day to settle our hearts, to seek the Lord, that God, you know, when that time comes... When there is persecution, when there is difficulty, you will give me a wisdom and a mouth to speak, to give an answer for the hope that's in me. And when we see the signs of the times, we will look up. We will lift up our heads. And I, I love David's psalm that says, the Lord is the lifter of my head. That when we have no strength to lift our head, in looking to him, he will lift our head. He gives us the strength to persevere. Please turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Starting in verse 1, just like to read these uh, verses that provide such a, a godly and healthy perspective. In light, of the, in light of Jesus and those who have trusted him before, because he, throughout the Hall of Faith in chapter 11, the writer has mentioned all these different believers, men and women who followed God and served him, and how they were persecuted how they endured a lot of hardship and difficulty, and yet came forth. God brought them through. Hebrews 12, verse 1, Therefore we also, 
Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. I like that Jesus spoke of his return before he even left the earth. He spoke of his return before he died and rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father and sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. And his return, your redemption, it's closer now than it has been at any point in history, right now. And I could say, and right now, and it would be true. But looking to him who has overcome, it keeps us from weariness and discouragement and the cares of this world that weigh us down. So I ask you, are you weighed down with cares? Sometimes we don't realize the burden that we're carrying. We've carried it for a long time. We, we don't know how it could be lifted. We don't see a resolution, so we continue carrying it. It's faith in Jesus that enables us, it strengthens us to be casting our cares upon him. Like, I can't even carry this burden. How can I cast it? Right? If the, if the truck has fallen on top of you, it's impossible, and you're stuck on the ground, obviously. How are you going to cast this burden off? Well, it's because Jesus helps us to do that in faith, just like he raises the dead. He enables us to be casting our cares upon him because he cares for us. So instead of considering an uncertain future, Consider Jesus, settle your hearts, look up, lift up your heads, because your redemption draws nigh. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you have given us your promises, and that you have fulfilled your word, that 40 years after Jesus prophesied the fall of those uh, stones of the temple, you had it fulfilled by the Romans, and we know that you also will accomplish everything you've said that you will return someday to judge the world. And Lord, may we be counted worthy to escape that judgment that's coming and to stand before you, not as, as merely pardoned sinners, but as son and daughters, those whom you have redeemed. Thank you, Lord, that you've given us such hope in a time of uncertainty that we can be, we have rock-solid faith in you to know that you will be faithful, that you will fulfill your word to us and that you will redeem us. Thank you, Lord, for the, this reminder that we need. And may we put off the works of the flesh and those weights that easily ensnare us, that sin that, uh, that we are guilty of. Lord, I pray that you would help us to stand strong in faith and to follow you, to look to you. And may you receive all the glory and honor you deserve. In Jesus' name, amen.